is Matthew. I'm one of the pastors here at Well of Life. And I'm going to be sharing with you the second part of our, uh, of our Colossians series. But I want to uh, start by kind of sharing with you just a little bit of uh, history. So in the 17th century in England, the monarch was sitting around one day and he was thinking, you know what? You know what would be really useful to have? A complete list of everyone who has died. And so basically what they um, put together was something that, basic, uh, that became known as the, as the Bill of Mortality. And so in this, over the year, they would make sure that they would get the clerk of the parish to kind of write down everyone who had died. And then they would collate all this information together and they would produce a report of the deaths for that year. So if we can skip through just a couple of these. Okay, so this is what the Bill of Mortality would look like. If we go to the next slide. So you see they would write a list down of every single uh, variety of death. So you would have, so there was about a quarter of a million people living in London at that point. So 612 people died simply because they were old. They just went down as aged. Uh, 454 people died because of what they put down as teeth. So complications of teeth. 63 people, and I think somebody was being lazy here, died suddenly. There was no explanation. There was no sense of, you know, trying to investigate it was. They were alive. Now they're dead. Eh, suddenly. One unfortunate person died of piles. Less said about that, the better. And then this is my favorite. One person died because he was bit by a mad dog. Now, what I love about that is this idea that last year there was a sane dog that bit someone and they died. And they thought, well, this year, was the dog sane? Was it not sane? No, it was a mad dog. Okay, we will differentiate it. And when you start looking through these reports, you find this the most amazing thing. There's uh, one year where 47 people died of what they put as wind. I can only assume, and I don't want to be crass, 47 people farted themselves to death. I would not want to be a part of that household. I would certainly would not want to be the attending doctor. But what's really interesting about this list is we start to get a, um, a picture of what 17th, uh, 17th century London started to look like. We started to see some of the trials and tribulations that people faced. Many illnesses that are minor and mild today unfortunately, caused death. And so, if you do the stats, about 4% of people in London died that year. That's kind of compared to just under 1% uh, today. And so, there was a high mortality rate. You, you, you know, um, you were lucky or you were, you know, blessed if you had survived kind of year to year. Now, you may be kind of asking, Matthew, what on earth does this have to do with the book of Colossians. And I want to argue this morning that Paul writing in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he tells us to put to death our earthly sins. And so in the same way that in the 17th century, the crown wanted a, a list of mortality, a list of what was put, of how people died, I think one of the things that we should have in our Christian testimony is our own bill of mortality, of, of the things of our past, that through the power of Jesus, through the, the, the power of the cross, has been put to death. That we 
should be able to differentiate out the old self and the new self. The old creation that was before Christ and the new creation that came about in that moment of salvation when we surrendered our lives to Jesus and we were born again. That part of our testimony should be that there is a bill of mortality. Let's just open in a word of prayer. Almighty God, I pray as we come and wrestle with this scripture through this morning, Lord, it's a, it's a difficult scripture. But it's a scripture where there's hope because it points to the cross and it points to what Jesus has done for us. And so I pray now, Lord, I just invite your Holy Spirit into our midst. May there be a spirit of conviction that rises upon us. May there be a spirit of conviction that, that leads us to a place of freedom. But I also pray against the spirit of condemnation. Satan, you have no uh, jurisdiction. You have no ability. You have no right at this place. And so that, that spirit of condemnation, which only you bring, we bind in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. I think it's very important in a preach like this that we separate out the difference between conviction and condemnation. The devil will only bring condemnation. But that as we start to wrestle through with how do I deal with sin, what does, what does the sin look like in my life, what the devil tries to do is he tries to condemn us. He tries to say that you are worthless, that you are powerless, that, 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 that your sin is, is, uh, is so overwhelming that God could not love you, that God could not rescue you, that God could not save you. And that is absolute rubbish. But what the Holy Spirit does is he searches our heart and our life and he brings conviction. He shows us where there are areas of our lives that need to change, but then leads us in the process so that we can deal with it. Condemnation will always bring despair. Conviction will always bring hope. And so as we wrestle through with this text this morning, I, I pray that that spirit of conviction will be searching you. And I, I want to be honest with you guys. Everything that we're going to look at this morning, I've had to wrestle through at different points this week. That I have felt the spirit of conviction bring to my mind and I've had to deal with there and then. Sometimes I've got it right and sometimes I fail. And the next day he's had to again bring that conviction. This isn't something that kind of once you kind of get promoted or kind of um, prayed on as a deacon, suddenly you don't have to wrestle with it. Or when you become an elder, it's so far removed. This is something that, uh, that is the story or part of the story of every single Christian alive. And it's because of that that Paul takes it so seriously. And so Rob reminded us last week this idea that our Christian um, behavior is, is grounded in our belief. That our practice is rooted in our doctrine. That, that once we understand the position that we now have in Christ, that it's going to have a tangible effect on how we go about living our lives. And so one of the things that we need to guard ourselves against is that we do not split those, uh, those things apart. I think one of the struggles, one of the problems of doing the Colossians series in, in two halves is that for the first half, we were speaking, speaking very much about our belief. We focus on this idea that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is supreme, that Christ is enough for everything that we have in our life. And now as we look at chapters three and four, we're looking at the practical application of that. What does that look like for me in my life, but we have to remember that these are that this was one letter, that those chapters and verse numbers that you see weren't there, and so the hearers of this letter they were 
having those two things linked together, they weren't separating them up at all. And I think one of the, the traps that we can fall into as Christians today, and it's great having Bible apps, and it's great having easy access to Bibles with chapters and verse numbers, but we, we make these artificial separations that we kind of read just bits about how great it is that we have now been raised with Christ, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father, but then we stop to carry on reading where it tells us that there needs to have an actual practical application for how we live our lives. So just to uh, summarize from Rob last week, Colossians 1, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so Rob kind of drew our attention to this idea of our position. So we are now uh, positioned with Christ in heaven. And this idea that we are to live our life as heavenly citizens, that we have left this old life behind, that we aren't just people who are waiting either to die or for Jesus to return, but actually to the, to the mystery that comes in that union of salvation. We are experiencing a part of that resurrection life here today on earth. And then the response of that, we see it in verse 2, that we are to set your minds on the things above, not on the things and so this isn't just a new identity that we have to take on, but it's actually a new base of operation. That we are to locate ourselves as if we are in heaven right now. That we are to, to, to see ourselves as the citizens of heaven who are uh, temporarily walking upon earth. And when we allow that mindset to shift, when we allow our, our thinking to be renewed and to be changed, then suddenly the way that we encounter things, the way that we deal with problems, the way that we see our life is going to be radically different. And so today I want to examine what is that difference, that new heavenly position should look or should make in the way we live. So we pick it up if you've got your Bibles with you, Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 5. Paul writing says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put the old self off with its practice. Now, when we read a text like that, it may seem doom and gloom. It may seem, again, we hear that spirit of condemnation kind of creeping in the back of our minds. But I want to tell you that in a text like this, actually is the hope of the gospel. Because Jesus isn't uh, calling us, and uh, Paul writing, obviously, but Jesus isn't calling us to a lifestyle that we're set up to fail. He isn't calling us to kind of do a set of acts that we're only going to end up in despair and destruction, but he's calling us to a newness of life. He's calling us to a fullness that can only come through him. And so when we read a text like this, when we read a challenge to allow that positioning to radically change how we live our life, actually it's the hope of the gospel because it's the hope of the life that Jesus has promised to us. 
And so I think there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves as we pray. The first one is, me as an individual, what is it that I need to change? What is it that I need to, or how do I need to allow this text to affect me? There is a personal responsibility in this. But I also believe that there's a corporate responsibility. That there's a sense that, that my sin, that the, the, the thing that, that God is calling us to, isn't just about me and Jesus, but it's about us as the body. And so whenever we're kind of uh, looking at why certain things are prohibited, or why God is calling us into a particular lifestyle, we need to ask, what is the personal effect for me? But also, what is the call? What is the challenge for us as a community? And I think when we implore both these things, when we allow both these lenses, uh, or when we use both these lenses to look at the scriptures and see them with a greater clarity, why some things are ruled out, and why some things are encouraged. And so Paul's command is simple. We are to put to death all that is earthly. Paul here is wanting to make a stark contrast between the patterns and the behaviors that were once associated with our past life. That he was wanting us to realize that because of this heavenly position, that things have to and as I was thinking about this, the, the only sort of illustration, the only picture that kept springing to my mind was this. If you think about your home country, if you think about where you're from, and then you've moved to Dubai, there are certain things that you have had to leave behind. So one of the things that is very painful for me as, a, as an English person in pretty much every um, business that I work for, at about 10.30 and about 3.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there would be a tea break. Like, that was just expected. Like, you had your one-hour lunch break, and then you had a 20-minute, sometimes an hour, tea break at 10, 10, 30, and again in the afternoon. And that's just how businesses operated. And it was great, and it was wonderful. And I think the world needs to rediscover this, because you're missing out. And now I come to Dubai, and again, it's a little bit different kind of working for the church, I realize. But, yeah, we just have a, just a no, we don't have a continued tea break. I want to make that clear. So... We have gone and bought a teapot for the office. I will say that's one of the best purchases. I made out my own money. That was not from the tithe. That was from my own money. And I made that very clear. But that was a pattern of work that I had to leave behind. And here in Dubai, people are working long hours and they're often working six days a week. And so there is the sense that there is that old past, that old way of doing things in your country is no longer relevant or is no longer applicable here in Dubai. In Dubai, I'm never going to have to ask myself the question, have I got enough clothes on today? I think I may be cold. That is a question that is never going to have to go. In England, I mean, you're literally going, well, I've got my two jumpers on, and I've got my coat, and I've got my cagoule, and a scarf, and my boots. Do I think I'm going to be okay? That is a constant question. It's not going to be relevant here. In England, I'm never going to have to go, have I swept the sand outside or the sand from my house? If I have, something has gone terribly wrong in the way that I'm living my life. There is just certain difference. Now, again, this analogy breaks down because you may go home, uh, go back to your home country. You may go on to a different country. And so these are temporal things. But it still just kind of shows there is a reality, there is a sense that there are things that we have to leave behind that when we uh, relocate, that when our citizenship is transferred, there's a different way of behaving. There's a different set of norms and cultural practices. And so that is exactly what Paul is arguing out. 
that that thing from your former past, that the thing from the world, that, that the, the, the earthly things, the things of the flesh, have no place in your life as a heavenly son and daughter of God. And so that's why he uses such extreme language. That's why he says that you are to put to death. You are to put to death that thing, that stuff, that sin of your past. And so why then? Why is Paul kind of using such strong language? Why is he arguing with the church in Colossae as if it's something that they need to take hold of. A few verses earlier, Paul in Colossians chapter 2 declares, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive, why, sorry, why, as if you were still alive in the world? You see, Jesus disarmed the devil on the cross. Jesus took that legal indebtedness that that Satan was able to hold over us because of us falling short of God's glory, and he was able to hold it over our heads. And so Jesus, by taking on the fullness of our sin, the fullness of the curse that was rightfully ours to bear, and being nailed to the cross, being that, that perfect substitutionary atonement for us, dealt with it. Your sin has been dealt with. This is what Paul is wanting to remind the church in Colossae, that Jesus has disarmed the devil, that he has humiliated the devil, that he has triumphed over the devil. The devil no longer has any right or any power. But Satan has not given up the battle yet. He still chooses to try and use sin in our life. He still chooses to try and tempt us to live below par, to live below what God has called us to. And so even though the power has been broken, what Paul is calling the church to is that you need to make an active choice to continue to live in that freedom. That you need to make an active choice to kind of celebrate the victory that Jesus won on the cross. And so that call, that challenge to put to death is for us to take the personal responsibility of saying, yes, I know that the power of sin has been broken, but temptation still rises up in my life. There is still temptation. There is still things that need to be overcome. And so the question is not whether we have these desires, but whether we seek to slay them when they rise up in our hearts. And so when we explore this list, I want uh, one of the things that we see is really interesting is that there's sort of um, a graduation of, of, of sin or there's kind of... Um, Uh, a journey that we see. So if we look at verse uh, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality. Uh, The Greek word there is is the word pornea. It's obviously where we get the word pornography from. And what it means is literally any uh, sexual activity that takes place outside of marriage, anything that is outside of the kind of the will of God. And so it is um, adultery. It is 
um, having uh, sex before you're married. It is sleeping with prostitutes. Whatever um, you can think of it, 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 when there is a a physical sexual act that is taking place outside of of what God has ordained. Impurity. So again, one of the things the Jews were very um, concerned about was this sense of what's pure and impure, what's clean and unclean. And the word, uh, and the Greek word behind the word impurity is more the sense of the state of your mind or or, or the state of your will. Is it that you're seeking towards the things uh, of God? Or is it that you're thinking, uh, seeking towards the things of this world, the, the, the sexualization of the world around us? It goes on to say passions, evil, and evil desires. And so what we see then is that he goes from the explicit to the implicit. He goes from the actual kind of sexual act to then the, the thought that we may harbor in our mind, to the way that we perceive people, that we look at people, that, the way that we treat other people. And so there is this constant sense, and we see this again and again in Jesus when he kind of refines the laws of the Old Testament. You know, uh, it's not just enough to not commit adultery, but when you look at uh, a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery in your heart. That there is this ever um, greater sense of purification. There's this ever greater sense that it's not just about the act in itself, but it's about the heart behind that. And so what Paul is calling the church towards is that you need to cut off, that you need to to root out, that you need to, to find out the source of that sin and do everything that you can to remove it from your life. I think one of the things that we're very good at doing is setting up um, artificial boundaries. We say, well, the Bible clearly says that this is wrong. But actually, these steps leading up to it, I will indulge, I will allow, I will say, it's fine because I'm not actually committing the big sin. I'm not actually transgressing the law. But what we see is that Paul is saying, no, you need to have this constant refining of your heart, this constant refining of your mind, that you should be seeking this purity that whittles it down so your heart becomes more and more pure. Your heart becomes more and more like that of Jesus. He's telling us that we need to get radical with dealing with our sin. And so for the church that he was writing to, the city of Colossae wasn't a particularly important city anymore, but it still uh, kind of looked like any Roman city. There were still many uh, cults and religions, and and a big part of them would be temple prostitution. It certainly would be um, sexual acts of people other than your wife as being a form of worship. Being a part of the Roman world, there was also just a very liberal view of sexuality. And uh, And it was expected that if you were a good Roman citizen, that you would have sexual partners apart from your wife, that you would... Um, that some of your slaves in your household you would take for sexual pleasure, that even there was a sense of uh, a state-sanctioned form of pedophilia, that this was just accepted, that this is what uh, being a good Rome looked like. And so Paul is writing to a church that was kind of having to deal with this, that was being confronted with this on a day-to-day basis, that as they would walk to the church, they would walk past the temple, that they would remember their old life. And so I think for us, it's not too dissimilar. And again, we may argue that in Dubai, a lot of it is, um, you know, it, it's not quite as in your face. It's not quite a thing, but it, it still is the same thing that we do. It still is the same kind of um, 
attitudes and kind of over-sexualization that views the self product that is um, a, a commercialization of it all, we still are having to encounter it. And so Paul, knowing that this church is wrestling through these writings, they're saying, you know, it's not just enough to kind of put up some boundaries. It's not just enough to kind of suppress it or to try and control it. But you need to root it out in your life. You need to 100% completely remove it. But why these things? Why, why particularly does Paul kind of identify these? He says this in verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living among them. So Paul has made an argument here. He has, he has listed um, a whole group of sexual sins. And he's saying that you need to rid them from your life because the wrath of God is coming to those now that's a hard uh, text to try and grapple with, to try and acquire. And I just want to take just a couple minutes of, of trying to explore a little bit about, well, what do we mean when we talk about the wrath of God? Why is it that Paul sacks, um, uh, selects these particular sins as being deserving of God's wrath? And so the understanding behind God's wrath is that God alone is the only one who is righteous enough to pour out his wrath. And that wrath is, the, is a, a righteous reaction of a holy God to unholy acts. You remember a couple of months ago in August, I was preaching uh, from 1 Peter chapter 1, and we were talking about the holiness of God. And in it, we looked at this idea that, that God's holiness is what makes him unique, is what separates him out, that God alone is holy, that there, no one else can compare, no one else can compete, no one else can even come close. And that his holiness is the source of the whole of the universe. His holiness is the source of life. And so anything that contradicts that, anything that seeks to contaminate that, anything that seeks to kind of destroy that, God has to, because of his righteousness, deal with it. And his wrath, his judgment, is the righteous consequence of when a holy God comes, uh, comes against a holy God. And when we look in the Old Testament, we see the wrath of God poured out. The acts that it is poured out on is anything that is sinful, that brings destruction, that destroys, that brings death. You see, if we're saying that God's holiness is the source of life, that anything that then brings death is against God. That anything that seeks to destroy is against God. And so the righteous judgment, the righteous consequence, is that God needs to erase it, that God needs to remove it, because God is always on the side of love. God is always on the side of righteousness. And so I would want to argue that when we look, and this was perfectly shown in Jesus, that Jesus boring our sin, that boring our death, boring our destruction, it talks about the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus. But what was amazing is that the righteousness of Jesus righteousness of Jesus being fully God and fully man meant that when the unholiness of mankind met the holiness of God, it wasn't that holiness was contaminated or destroyed, but it was that um, death and curse was defeated. And now anyone who comes to Jesus can have eternal life. And so why these particular sins? Well, I would want to argue, and we don't have time this morning, if you read Revelations chapter 1, 
uh, we see this beautiful picture of this new heaven and this new earth. But in verse 8, it says this. But as for the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, God says there's clearly no space in his kingdom for that that brings death. There is no space in his kingdom for sin. There is no space in his kingdom for that which destroys. And I think sexual immorality, in particular more than many sins, maybe not physically, but emotionally, spiritually, socially, has the ability to destroy how can one, how can someone take part in something like sex trafficking and not lose a part of their humanity, to not lose a part of what it is to be human? How can a prostitute be abused and raped every single night and not have part of their humanity torn away from a wife or a husband for that matter be cheated upon day to day and not feel that their humanity is being removed a young woman or young man forced into pornography not feel that there is part of their humanity that is being robbed that is being stolen from them these are just a few examples but you start to see that the impact of that sin not just on the perpetrator, but also the sufferer, is that it dehumanizes them, that it, that it literally strips away their life, it strips away the very essence that God has put within them. And so the only response, the only right response of a righteous, holy God is to pour out his wrath upon those acts, to pour his wrath upon those who perpetuate them. is not just something that we quietly practice in the dark, but it has ripples. It disrupts the very community, the very life that we live in. When our minds become so warped by sexual sin that we stop to see another person as, as uh, their, their humanity, their, 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 their God-givenness, and see them purely as a commodification, as something that can be used and abused. It is the consequence of our sin manifest in the community. When someone who has been uh, abused or suffered feels that this no longer can be a safe space for them, can be a place where they can be loved and accepted for who they are because they're worried about leering eyes, they're worried about how people may see them or treat them. Their humanity is gone. Paul, many people are very quick to write Paul off as saying that he is dated, that he is a, is a man of the times. I think Paul has a unique and an uncanny ability to understand the true power that comes to sex and sexuality. He understood the corruption of sex that led to exploitation, self-gratification, the, the commodification of it. He understood that outside of the proper boundaries of marriage, that sex could be a destructive force. That the very thing that God has assigned to bring unity actually brings division and brokenness. And so this is why Paul said there is to be no place in your life for sexual immorality. There is to be no place for this sin 
Because if our desire is to seek what God has for us, if our desire is to be both as an individual transformed more into the likeness of Christ, but also as a, a community, as a church, to be transformed into his body, into his bride, then this cannot be allowed to manifest. Interestingly, it talks at the end, it says, um, he also mentions covetousness. And you may think, well, this is an unusual thing to add. It says covetousness, which is idolatry. But I would want to argue that at the heart of sexual sin is actually greed. Greed is another word for covetousness. And it's a greed that says that I can never be satisfied. That, that my desire is to push the boundaries further and further. That what we're actually saying is that God is not enough. That God is not able to meet this need. That God is not able to meet these desires that I have. And so I have to almost become my own God and seek to be the satisfaction that God is not providing. There's so much more we can talk about, but we don't have time. But Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 8, but now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk for your lips. Do not lie to one another. Now I think it's really easy in a preach like this to kind of go, well, I'm not committing any of verse 5, so I'm good. I'm fine. I love my wife. I'm, I'm faithful to my wife. I, I don't look at porn. I, 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 I see the humanity in people. I, I take every thought that comes to my mind captive. And if that's you, then fantastic. I, I celebrate the fact that you've encountered these sins in your life. But verse 8 then provides a different it provides a list that I think are sometimes are much harder to quantify, sometimes are much harder to actually deal with. But what each one of these sins has, and again, we don't have time to explore the differences, is they have the power to divide and to destroy. If we allow these things to manifest in us as individuals, it's going to divide and destroy those around us that we love. If we allow it to manifest in us as a church, it will divide and it will destroy. I just want to quickly point out uh, verse 9. Do not lie to one another. I think there's something particularly um, destructive about the sins that deal with unforgiveness. Because what it is saying when we lie to someone else, what we are doing is we are removing that person's humanity by saying, you, I do, I, I sorry, we are removing that person's humanity by choosing not to honor them, by choosing you are not worthy of the truth, that you are not worthy of, of a sense that, that I am honest and open to you, and so I will choose lies. When we choose to not honor someone, we are robbing them again of their humanity. God cannot and will not tolerate So, what does this look like? How do, we, how, how do we deal with this? One of the things you have to be really careful of, and again, this goes back to chapter 2, is that, that we need to see that there are certain practices that are not healthy. Paul says in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, of the world and not according to Christ. And verse 18, uh, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, 
going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by sensuous minds. Skipping down to verse uh, 23. These things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to body, but they are and have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul is very quick to point out that asceticism, so asceticism is a, it's a philosophy that was um, common in the, the Roman world and still is practiced today. Uh, the, the Greek word behind it literally means to train and to exercise. And it was originally used as, uh, for athletes who were competing in the Olympics, that they would train their body, that they would go under kind of grueling uh, regiments of food and fitness so that they, when they were ready to compete, they were uh, perfection. They were perfectly fit, perfectly ready. But over time, and very much using the work of Plato, what happened was it, it, it turned into a philosophy. Plato believed that the, the only thing that was important was the mind, was the intellect, was the spirit. And that the body with its desires was actually uh, something that hindered the pursuit of true spiritual growth. And so what uh, people did, and particularly people like the Stoics did, is they, they took this to the extreme. And so they would deny um, uh, the indulgence of their body. They would uh, go for long periods of time without eating. They would sleep in caves. They would even go as far with dealing with kind of sexual sin of, uh, of self-castration or um, of beating their bodies, of wearing clothes that would have uh, uh, glass and spikes in. And so there was a sense that by constantly kind of abusing and beating the body, that I could try and kind of allow my spirit uh, to soar. And Paul is saying that that's going to do nothing. That's going to do achieve nothing in dealing with the desires and the issues of the flesh. There are only two, I think, major ways that we can deal with this. The first one is that we have to respond, we have to respond to the truth that Jesus has broken the power of sin on the cross. That me, Matthew, in my own strength, has no ability to deal with this. But when I choose to surrender, when I choose to submit my all to Jesus, and I, and I am united with him, that not only am I united in his death, but I am united in his resurrection. And so there is hope, there is power for the Holy Spirit that is endowed upon me to deal with these sins, to deal with the things that are, are, are stopping me from growing more into the likeness of Jesus. And then the second thing, and let's get really practical here, and I don't have time to read them all out, but they'll be up on the screen. These are just uh, 20, and I'm just going to highlight a few really practical things regular confession. Remove the temptation. If you know you have a particular stumbling block, if you know there's a particular magazine or particular website or particular TV program, then remove that from your life. Do not even give you the opportunity of, to be tempted. Deal quickly with, defense, uh, with offense. Forgive and repent. In 1 Corinthians 6.18 it says to flee from sexual sin. The, 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 the Greek is literally run away from it. Do not allow it to even come close to you. Deal with your anger. Follow the example that we see with Jesus. On top of that, there's a whole range of people that are here to help you. Your Connect 4 group, your Connect 4 leaders, people who are committed to journeying with you. Our elders and other in the church who would love to counsel you through this. 
We're going to have a time of prayer ministry in a moment where it's just an opportunity to come and surrender it to God. Whatever it may be, whatever the, the right kind of answer is, deal with it. Deal with it. Because when we do, when we, when we step from that place of bondage into that place of liberation, suddenly we start to live a life in the fullness that Christ has won for us. This isn't about restricting a set of practices. This isn't saying you can do this but not this. But it's about praying and hoping that you step into the fullness that God has for you. My prayer, my hope, is that you will be able to write your own bill of mortality. Your own sense of this was in my past. This was my old self these, these years. Paul was using this image of these dirty, rotten, stinky clothes. And I have chosen to throw them off.